Turn in your Bibles this morning to Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to warn you that I may cough up a lung, maybe two this morning. I make no promises. And by the way, I don't promise to do that as though it's a trick of the sermon either, but I just, it may happen in the course of preaching. And uh, I wish I could tell you it's because I'm such great and passionate preacher, but really it's I'm getting over this sickness that you all gave me. Amen. So you pray for me this morning. I am feeling good. Amen. If I can just keep what's uh, the lungs on the inside on the inside, we'll be doing okay this morning. Genesis chapter number three. And I'd like to begin reading at verse number one. If you're a student of the Bible, this is probably a very familiar passage of Scripture to you. I want to draw your attention. We'll, we'll use the entirety of, of the portion we read, but I, I want to draw your attention to one verse in particular this morning. Genesis chapter three, verse number one. The Bible says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened. Ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. We'll stop our reading there and pray. Lord, we love you this morning. Thank you for the house of God. Lord, thank you that there is a place that we can come to. Lord, I know the church is is the saved, the redeemed of the Lord that have been bonded together in the fellowship of the gospel. But Lord, I'm glad there's a place we can come where we can meet commonly together, Lord, and we can assemble and we can worship Lord, we can feel your presence. We can enjoy your preaching, Lord. We can enjoy the worship that we've enjoyed here today. Lord, I'm just thankful for this place. I'm thankful that you brought us to this moment in time. Lord, I know that there's not a person here present in this room that is here by accident. Lord, we're all here by providence. You brought us to this place because you have a truth for us for this hour and a work that you seek and desire to do in us. I pray that you'd help us, Lord, to recognize and appreciate the gravity of this moment. And Lord, may it not just pass us by without us gleaning from it what you'd have us to know and to understand. 
if there's any that are amongst us that are lost. And Lord, in a group this size, that wouldn't be a surprise. I pray that you'd convict their heart. Show them that they are lost. Show them they need Christ. Show them that life without Him is no life at all. And that eternity without Him is surely not but death and torment. Lord, I pray that they would receive Christ as their Savior. Be gloriously born again. Life begun afresh and anew in the new birth today. Lord, if there's any that are wayward, that have strayed from you, I pray that you'd, in loving kindness, draw them back to yourself. Lord, any that are discouraged, encourage them. Lord, I pray if there's any that are uh, prideful or haughty, they'd be abased. But Lord, that all that needs to be done in our life would be accomplished by your hand and for your glory today. Lord, we love you. We thank you for what you've done and what we know you'll do in your faithfulness. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Genesis chapter number 3 is, to me, one of the most fascinating passages in the entirety of the Word of God. A student of the Bible will know that there is a golden rule of biblical interpretation. And it goes this way, that the first time that something's mentioned in the Bible, there are certain characteristics that are found present in that mention that will carry through through the rest of the Word of God unless there is some dispensational or biblical reason why a transition must take place. And I'll tell you, this chapter is full of a bunch of firsts. When you read it, you find the first mention in Scripture, at least in the way that the Bible is canonically laid out for us, of the devil. Uh, we find the first instance of mankind sinning. We find the first instance of mankind's separation from God. We find the first instance of God's mercy in dealing with mankind. We find the first instance of sacrifice being given and of shed blood covering over sin. There's all sorts of first things in this chapter that are fascinating to behold. But there is one verse that stands out to me above all the rest, and particularly so in my thinking and on my heart today. And it's verse number 15. Whenever the Lord is speaking to Satan and pronouncing upon him the curse as a result of what he's done on this day, he makes a statement regarding the relationship between Satan and humanity, how it had forever changed, and how one day God would rectify and deal with the problem of that change. He says in verse number 15, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Now, that language may be unfamiliar to you. You may read it and say, Preacher, there's some things I don't understand what's said or why it's said that way. But just breaking the verse down very simply, we can immediately see on the face of it its meaning. He says, I will put enmity. That's animosity. That's hostility. That's hatred. Amen. Uh, you know, uh, the, 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 the way that, uh, you know, some of these rival football teams feel about each other. Somebody say amen to that. And the way everybody feels about Ohio State. It's enmity, amen? It's, it's enmity, it's hostility, it's open aggression. He says, I will put enmity, animosity, hostility between thee, Satan, and between the woman. Now, is uh, the Lord speaking only of Eve? Why, well, I think not, because I think even to this very day, there stands an animosity between Satan and between mankind. Then he says this, not only that, but between thy seed, thy offspring, thy progeny. And then he says this, 
and her seed, her offspring and her progeny. Now here in a few moments we'll see that there is more than meets the eye just in the simple reading of it. But suffice it to say that he speaks of those that would be the offspring of Satan. There are a few different possibilities. And I think in some ways they are all sort of scooped in to this. It's possible that he means unclean spirits. And certainly unclean spirits have an animosity towards mankind. It's possible that he's talking about wicked men. In fact, Christ made the statement about the Pharisees in John chapter number 8 that they were of their father, the devil. And I don't think he means necessarily all lost men, but certainly lost men that are wicked doers that hate Christ and hate the things of God. Uh, there are some men that are uh, lost in their, uh, in, that are in, in simplicity in their lostness. Let's say it that way. They're lost. They don't know they're lost. But there are some men that in their lost state, they know they're lost. They're happy they're lost. They hate God. They don't want to be on God's side. They despise the things of God. And certainly that was true of the Pharisees. And then even reaching future into the halls of prophecy, there will be one one day that will stand at the head of an empire that is comprised of both satanic influence and wicked men. And he is called the Antichrist. And certainly there could even be an application regarding the Antichrist here. But then he says this, he speaks of the seed of the woman. Does he simply mean all of mankind? We'll see here in a few moments, he does not. But just as there is an Antichrist, thank God there is a true Christ. And he's speaking of him. And he says this, that it, the seed of the woman, shall bruise thy head. And thou, Satan, shalt bruise his, the seed of the woman's, heel. See, when I read through this passage of Scripture, amongst all the first that are mentioned, this verse stands out to me for this reason. Because it is the first mention in the Word of God of a truth that we often call the incarnation. We are at the Christmas season right now, my favorite time of the year. If you're a visitor, you don't know why they're laughing. But you will here in a little while. I'm not a big fan of Christmas. Uh, I'm not doctrinally against it. I just don't like it. Amen? And uh, you didn't have to amen. If you like Christmas, that's okay. I don't care. It doesn't bother me. And uh, But but it's just not my favorite. And and a lot of the reason is because people say, Preacher, you're you're a preacher. How can you not like Christmas? Do you you not like the Lord Jesus and celebrating His birth? Well, no, that's not the problem. I I love the Lord Jesus. I love celebrating His birth. In fact, you'll find this, that there's a lot more in the Bible about the birth of Christ than just what's found in Luke chapter 2. You say, Preacher, you know, what's the problem? Do you like getting together with your family? No, I enjoy getting together with my family. Preacher, what, what is it? It's the commercialization that bothers me. It just bothers me because in this Christmas season, here's what we've done. We've made it about mangers. We've made it about wise men. We've made it about shepherds. We've made it about all these things that though they may have some place, certainly in the biblical telling of the birth of Jesus, we've made it about all the trappings and miss what is the purpose of it all. You say Christmas at the end of the day uh, is not simply about family getting together. It's not simply about singing songs and giving gifts and decorating and, and enjoying all those things, things that I don't think God begrudges. But Christmas, what it really at its heart is about, is about the truth of the incarnation. It's about this wondrous, glorious reality that, that the God of all glory... I'm talking about, I'm talking about the triune God. 
I'm talking about the God of all glory. I'm talking about the King. I'm talking about the potentate. I'm talking about the thrice holy God of the universe, the omnipotent God that pulled back the veil of of darkness and stepped out on nothing and flung all of creation into existence. I'm talking about that God. I'm talking about the God at the span of whose hand was used to measure the universe. I'm talking about the God that created all things and knows all things was compacted down to the span of a virgin's womb, robed in flesh, and walked amongst humanity. And I just think that's more important than the tinsel and the lights. And so I want us to look for a few moments this morning at this principle, this truth of the incarnation. If the Lord will let me, I may preach a few more messages along this same stream of thought. But when we read about the incarnation in the Bible, we find that there is one verse that encapsulates this ideal. And it's found in Isaiah 7.14. The prophet Isaiah penned these words. He said, Therefore, the Lord Himself shall give you a sign. Say, preacher, what's the incarnation? This is how the Bible defines it. Behold, a virgin shall conceive. Now, if your Bible says, young woman, throw your Bible away. And get your King James Bible. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now we're told in the New Testament what that word Emmanuel means. It means this, God with us. If I was to give a definition more clinical of the incarnation, it would read thusly. That the eternally existent second person of the triune Godhead, indwelt the sinless body prepared for him by the conception of the Holy Spirit in a virgin's womb. He was born in Bethlehem, in the land of Israel, and lived a perfect sinless life. He is a hundred percent God, as he has always and eternally been. And due to this miraculous entrance into time and humanity, he is also simultaneously a hundred percent man. This event and ongoing reality constitutes the truth of the incarnation. That God dwelt amongst men. Not merely that He visited, and not merely that He walked amongst, but that He became man Himself. That He felt what men feel, that He battled what men battle, that He suffered what men suffered. And that he, while retaining 100% of his divinity, managed to experience 100% of humanity. That's the incarnation. And when we go through the Bible, we find it's not confined to Luke chapter 2. But rather, over and over and over again in the Word of God, this truth is highlighted as being something of preeminent importance to us. Let me say this. This is a fundamental of the faith. A man can't be saved and reject the incarnation. Not only will it wreak havoc, logically speaking, with all of his concepts of what salvation is and should be, but he won't even understand how salvation was made possible unless he believes that God robed himself in flesh and walked amongst men. And so when you go through the Bible, (coughs) there are no doubt hundreds of verses But there are seven passages that came to my mind about the incarnation. And this morning, the first one is found here in Genesis 3. Now, 
Before we look at it, I want to make three statements about the incarnation. Let me say, number one, this morning that the incarnation is a truth of historical fact. Now, you will have some people that would like you to believe that all that's contained in the word of God is unsubstantiated and cannot be verified. But that is objectively false. There are, in fact, a myriad of ways, and the secular world accepts far more thin arguments and evidence and proof regarding historical things than they will accept regarding the truth and veracity of the Word of God. Time would fail me to go through everything I'd love to say right here, but let me just say this, the empty tomb is proof enough. The empty tomb is proof enough that God walked amongst men and that He was indeed God and not merely another man. And so the incarnation is not a matter of something that you must uh, necessarily accept for it to be true. You must be convinced of it for it to have impact in your life. But whether you accept it or not, it is true. It's a statement, a truth of historical <coughs> fact. Number two, the incarnation is a truth of theological force. In other words, what we believe about the incarnation will shape what we believe about everything else. This, by the way, is the reason, and you can study the history. I encourage you to do so. But the vast majority of the modern corrupt versions of the Word of God were produced by men that rejected things like the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ and sought to consistently denigrate and dismiss and and disregard the divinity of Jesus Christ. They didn't believe He was God. They believed He was a good man. I don't understand how you could believe He was a good man if He wasn't God. But they maintained that. And they claim, and that's part of the reason if you go through and look both at their texts and also at their translation work, you'll find over and over and over and over again them taking out titles and words that lend divinity to the name of Jesus Christ. Uh, You see, it affects everything you believe. And there is such a thing as theological consequence. You can't just believe anything you want and think that won't mess you up. What you believe will shape how you behave. What you believe about this will shape what you believe about everything else. If our theology is to be both biblical and sound, then it must include a right perspective on the incarnation. But then I'd say this. This really gets down where we live, man. The incarnation is a truth of practical faith. So what do you mean? Well, I mean, it's not just speculative. God didn't just give us this truth so that we could sit back and go, boy, howdy. Now, that's a truth. But rather, He gave us this truth that it might inform and shape the way that we live day by day. And it's with that in mind, I want you to consider a theme this morning as we look at our passage. Very first mention of the incarnation in the Word of God. It's mentioned prophetically, of course. And it speaks of the seed of the woman, of the appearance of Jesus Christ in time and humanity. And here's how this passage views the incarnation. In this passage, we have the incarnation viewed as a solution. Now, let me tell you something. The incarnation, it serves a lot of things. I won't go through all of them, but the incarnation, it was a manifestation. God was manifest in the flesh. It was a revelation. The Word was made flesh. It revealed to us who who God is. The incarnation, it it was a a coronation. Hey, uh, uh, unto us, 
a child is born unto us, a son is given. His name shall be called uh, Mighty Counselor, the, uh, the, the Mighty God, the Prince of Peace. The government shall be upon his shoulder. It was a coronation. I, the, the, listen, it was, it was a demonstration. Hey, listen, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. But here in this passage, here's how it's viewed. It's viewed as a solution to a broken world. Here in the midst of the wreckage of man exercising his autonomy, God answers and His answer is, I'll come and I'll fix it myself. Man, aren't you glad that God didn't leave it to us to fix the broken mess? But instead He said, I'll come and I'll fix it for you. In this passage, we see it as a solution to three things. I want you to notice these and I'll be done this morning. Let me say number one, we view it as a solution to man's fall. Isn't it fascinating that the very first occurrence of the incarnation being spoken of in the Bible is is presented almost like a diamond laid upon velvet. It is against the backdrop of man's fall. Man's occasion of sin, man's disobedience of the Lord, man walking in direct contravention to God's commandment to him. And here in the midst of that, God says, I'm going to send my son as a response. The passage, of course, begins with the temptation of Eve in the Garden of Eden by Satan indwelling, energizing, empowering this serpent and speaking through it and her eating of the fruit and then giving to her husband likewise to eat with her. And it's a reminder to me that mankind has a big problem that needs fixing. And that problem began way back in the Garden of Eden. Three things that we notice here. Notice, number one, the disobedience in this passage. Look at verse 6. The Bible says, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. This passage begins with mankind knowingly, willfully, even we might say maliciously, disregarding the commandment of God. You know why God had to send His Son to this earth? Because of man's sinful disposition. Uh, One commentator said it this way, that the Son of God became the Son of Man so that the sons of men could become the sons of God. The reality is this. You say, preacher, why do you believe that Jesus literally robed himself in flesh? Because I believe mankind was literally broken, depraved, and on his way to hell. I believe he came to fix, hey, listen, what the law could not do in the flesh, in that it was weak, God sending forth his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. See, here's the truth of the matter. You say, preacher, that old Eve, that wicked woman, she messed it up. Hey, listen, that old henpecked Adam, he done messed it up for us. No, here's the truth of the matter. If he had dropped you in the garden and me in the garden, we would have ate of the fruit too. The fact of the matter is, our wicked fallen nature, our broken, depraved condition, is such that we are tempted by that which displeases God. When we read this passage of Scripture, we see the disobedience. But then look at verse 7. The Bible says this, And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. Now, when you read that, especially in the, in the wild days we're living in today, you say, well, preacher, I don't see nothing scandalous about that. Uh, and I will readily admit to you that it's probably walking around with more on them than most people at Walmart have. Amen. But what transpires in this verse is indicative of something deeper that had transpired in the very condition of mankind. 
You see, prior to this moment, they were in innocence. Now, innocence does not necessarily mean that they did not do things that that would one day be denoted as being contrary to the word of God. Uh, certainly they did. The very fact they're walking around naked is something God commands us to modesty and shamefacedness. But in their innocent condition, they were unaware that what they were doing was wrong. And uh, in that innocent condition, they were not held accountable for that. Their conscience had not been activated. They were not smitten by the things that they were doing. God makes an interesting warning to Adam and Eve, or really to Adam alone, Eve not yet being created, in Genesis chapter 2. Listen to what he says in Genesis 2.16. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. What did God mean when he said that man would die? Did he mean merely that they would physically perish as though they had eaten something poisonous? No, obviously not, because we learn from the testimony and record of Scripture that, in fact, Adam and Eve did not physically die on this day. They would go on to live. Adam would go on to live. We uh, assume well over 900 years after this time. I guess some debate could be had about when the days of his life were being reckoned from. But certainly it's true that Eve goes on to bear children to Adam. And and presumably their life goes on for many, many more years after this. So what does God mean when he says that they would die? Some would say, well, preacher, what he means is that the physical properties and processes of death would begin at that moment. I'm not sure that that's altogether true. In fact, you know that uh, God put not only a tree of knowledge of good and evil in that garden, but He also put a tree of life. It's entirely possible that Adam and Eve, and I can't explain everything to you about this, but it's entirely possible that their physical life was not eternal uh, at this moment, even though they were in a state of innocence. I don't know. I can't answer everything about that. But I can tell you this, that the type of death that God's speaking of here is not physical in nature but rather it's spiritual in nature. In other words, he was saying your fellowship with me will be severed. Your life with me will be disrupted rather than you living in connection and communion with me. If you eat of this fruit, you're going to spiritually die. (coughs) I would have you know this morning, hey, listen, the most grievous product of sin uh, upon the sinner is not merely uh, the the physical pains that result from it. i got to drink a little water so I don't die. Give me a moment. If I die, y'all just preach me a funeral, all right? Take up one more offering. The worst consequences of sin are uh, not merely the scars that sin leaves upon the body, but the worst product of sin by far is the spiritual wreckage that it creates in the soul of a man. This is true, by the way, not just for those that are lost, but even for those that are saved. Hey, listen to me, saved person this morning. Don't think just because you're saved that sin can't, can't corrupt your life. It absolutely can. Here in this passage, we see there are three problems. Man's disposition to disobedience. We see the spiritual death that resulted from it. The reason they hid is because they felt no communion with God any longer. They were aware that they were naked. They were aware that they were corrupt. They were aware that they were wicked, and so they hid themselves from the Lord. And that brings us to verse 8. The Bible says this, They heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the cool of the day. Now, they are the apple of God's eye. They are His created beings. They've enjoyed fellowship with Him from the day of creation till now. And the natural response 
would be not to run from, but to run to God. But the Bible says this, Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And by the way, the Word of God is still asking lost men and women that question today. Where art thou? Where are you at? Where has sin brought you? And he said, verse 10, I heard thy voice in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. You see, we see not only the disobedience and the death, but we see the distance that's present there. Now Adam, who had enjoyed uninterrupted communion with God, is hiding and concealing himself away. He's trying to get as far from God and stay as far from God as humanly possible. Say, preacher, what a sad and tragic picture that is. Yes, but let me remind you this morning, it is to this tragedy that God says, I will send my son robed in flesh to walk amongst men. The preacher, the incarnation, how's it, a, how's it a solution? How's it possible? Well, here's how. Man in his lost condition, he's disobedient. He can't be righteous. God said, I'll come and I'll walk righteousness among you. Mankind in his lost condition, he is spiritually dead. He is separated from God. He has no spiritual life within him. So God said, I will come and I will walk spiritual life amongst you. Mankind in his distance, in his alienated, estranged relationship with God. Adam, it's not just he can't get to God. He don't want to get to God. Hey, listen, you know, the problem is not just a lost person can't get to God. It's they really don't want to get to God. So God says this, I'll come to you and I'll walk amongst you. I see the incarnation as a solution to man's fall. Notice number two, it's not only a solution to man's fall, but it's a solution to man's foe. Remember that this is addressed not to Adam nor to Eve, but God looks the devil right in his forked tongue and says, I'm coming for you one day. I'm going to send my son to come and bruise your head. This is said in response to the predations of Satan upon man's creator, upon God's creation. And there are three things that I want you to notice about the devil in this passage and, and that the incarnation speak to. Notice number one, his subtlety is emphasized. Verse number 13, whenever God looks at Eve and says, Eve, what happened? Eve says this, the serpent beguiled me and I did eat. The very first statement, the very first adjective that we're given about the devil in the record of the Word of God is this, that he's subtle. His subtlety is denoted. What does subtlety mean? Well, subtlety don't just mean... I'm going to get in trouble here in a second. In the context of Scripture, subtlety means deceptiveness. Let's use this term, wiliness. Wiliness. In other words, the ability to ensnare, to deceive... The ability to pull the wool over someone's eyes and the ability to harm them without their knowledge. And the Bible tells us this, that Satan, he's very crafty. Very crafty. Can I tell you this? Listen, you think you got him pegged. You think you know all his tricks. You think you've got his number and you think you've got him figured out. But let me tell you something. He has walked this earth a lot longer than you or I. And if you think for one moment you can turn your back on him because you think you got him cornered and got him understood, I promise you, you're wrong. There are vast worlds more that you don't know about him than that you think you do know about him. And the very first thing we're told 
is that he is to be untrusted. He is to be viewed askew. He is being uh, viewed with a critical, scrupulous eye. He is never to be trusted. We see his subtlety. But then notice number two, his hostility is denoted. You know, I, I wouldn't necessarily mind people being sneaky if they weren't trying to hurt me with it. That's my thing with these politicians, right? I mean, I don't even care that much that they're so sleazy. Just quit attacking me with it, you know? I'd be satisfied. I don't understand. Listen, we all, mm. I, we all get that they're in power. I don't know why they keep having to impoverish and kill us to prove the point, right? We all, we get it. We understand, all right? <laughs> I'm about to get into trouble. I don't, you know, the subtlety wouldn't be so bad. It's the hostility that's the problem. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, it ain't just that he's good at deceiving and destroying. It's that he hates you and wants to destroy you. Notice what the Lord said. He said, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. In other words, that there would never really be true common cause Betwixt the two. But at the end of the day, the devil will always seek to destroy the lives of mankind. The reason is because he hates God. And we're created in the image of God. What had Adam and Eve ever done to him? They hadn't done anything. I, I have a hard time believing that the devil's next revolution in heaven was going to be charged and led on high by Adam and Eve. That wasn't the reason he tempted them. He wasn't recruiting them. He hated them. Because when he saw him, he saw God. Because they were created in God's image. You may not understand why the devil wants to destroy your life. You may look at it and say, Preacher, I don't understand. I'm not that important. And you're right. But it don't matter. He hates you. And he'll destroy everything in your life that he possibly can. You say, Preacher, I haven't set myself against him. No, but he set himself against you. Find it interesting the Lord says he'd put enmity between me and the woman. Seems to me like there was already enmity, at least from one side to the other. But here's the problem. Eve trusted him. When the serpent saw her, he saw a mark. When she saw him, she saw nothing but a serpent. What's he saying? He's saying, I'm going to expose you for who and what you are. I'm going to show humanity how wicked you truly are. And I'm going to show and teach them to loathe and to hate you. Now you say, preacher, not very many people in the world hate the devil. And that's true. The God of this world has blinded their minds. But I'll tell you this, and I wish I could get lost people to understand this. If you could see for one moment what he wants to do to you, you wouldn't never want to be in a million miles of him again. If you could see what he wants your life to be, some of y'all, some of y'all saw it, and that's why you came to Christ. You saw it, man. You looked down at that needle in your arm. You look down at that broken life. You look down at that broken body. You look, you look down at that broken family. And you said, this is what he wants to do to me. And that caused you to turn to Christ and to say, I need a new master. What happened? The Lord put an enmity between you and him. We see his hostility, but then I like this. It don't end there. I see his destiny. Say, preacher, wait a minute. I thought we was preaching about the incarnation. Now we're talking about the devil. We'll get there. Look what he says in verse 15. He says, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. He says, it shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. 
Some of you may be sitting there saying, Preacher, I still don't see the incarnation here. There, there's, there's a snake, there's a woman, there's seeds. What do seeds have to do? But here's a few things I'd have you notice. Number one, when the word seed is used here, it's not denoting the idea of garden seed, though there are some parallels between the two ideals, but rather it's dealing with the idea of offspring or progeny. And you say, well, preacher, that's fine. So the descendants of Eve are going to destroy the descendants. No, it goes a little deeper than that because my basic high school, and I grew up in Christian school, so you take this for what it's worth, all right? But my basic high school health class tells me this without being too graphic. Women don't have seed. I just made a controversial statement. Ta-da! That would get me banned and imprisoned if it was on the Internet. Isn't that cool? Women don't have seed. Men have seed. And universally in the Bible, you'll find that this language of seed is never used regarding women except in this one and lone case. You say, preacher, that's interesting, but what does it mean to me? Well, it means a lot when you remember exactly how the incarnation, the process of it was performed. In fact, Christ was not born with an earthly father, but rather remember what Isaiah 7:14 says, a virgin shall conceive and bear a child. I don't want to get too graphic this morning, but uh, it's impossible for a virgin to conceive. By the time she is conceived, the virginity is gone. All right? You all right this morning? Some of y'all seem nervous. Are you okay? We're not, do you try, I'm, I'm not gonna, I'm not about to break out charts. Alright, don't get nervous. This is a Sunday morning sermon, but I, I, I got, but I'm gonna preach the Bible, alright? And I, I'm, I'm just telling you, by the time she conceives, she's no longer a virgin. And yet, we find that that's exactly what the Bible said would and did transpire. Now, how did this take place? Well, because the Lord Jesus was born not of the relationship between a human man and and a human woman, but rather between the Holy Spirit of God and a human woman. The Bible says that the Holy Ghost came upon Mary and she conceived and bore a child. Uh, that, That holy thing that was in her was conceived of the Holy Spirit, meaning that physical, tangible body. By the way, Jesus didn't start existing in Mary's womb. He had always existed but the physical body that was prepared for him. That's what the book of Psalms and Hebrews said. A body hast thou prepared me. And that's, by the way, the reason that the Bible calls it that holy thing that is within thee. Now, this is unique because in biology regarding you and me, uh, a, a, a human body within a woman, is it's not a fetus. Isn't it funny, man, how all these Hollywood starlets that believe in abortion, it's always a fetus until they're putting baby pics up. Until they're putting like sonogram pictures up. And they're not like, look at my beautiful fetus. For them, it's a baby. For you, it's a fetus. By the way, that's not a slip of the tongue. They believe the children you have are worth less than the children they have. And that's why they say that. But you see, that child, and that's why I like the Bible terminology of being with child, that child is a child from the moment of conception. But now, this is unique regarding the birth of the Lord Jesus. Before He ever inhabited that body, that body was prepared for Him. Now, how was that even physically possible? Well, because the life comes from the Father. Right? 
right? Wherefore, as in Adam all died, right? Death passed upon all men, that, that it's in Adam. It's from the man that light, but there was no human male sire. And so the Holy Spirit conceived a body within the womb of Mary for the Lord Jesus, the second person of the Godhead, to take up residence in. And that's how the incarnation transpired. And therefore, when it says the seed of the woman, in a normal circumstance, a woman doesn't have seed. Why was it the seed of the woman? Because it sure enough wasn't the seed of Joseph. God gave that body into her womb. And therefore, it was the seed of the woman. And here's what it says about that seed. It says, that, I love this, between the woman, between thy seed and her seed. And he says this, it, the seed of the woman, God in the flesh, Christ, it shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. I see not only his subtlety and his hostility. Remember what we're talking about this morning. The incarnation as a solution, right? Man's fall. What did it produce? Disobedience, death, distance. God said, I'll come, be perfectly obedient. I'll come and bring life and light. I'll come where you can't come to me. I'll come to where you are. Here we see Satan's subtlety. We see his hostility. But then we see his destiny. What's man going to do about his chief foe? Man in and of himself can't do anything. But I tell you this, the Son of Man can. And the Son of Man did. On Calvary's hill, his heel was bruised, but Satan's head was bruised likewise. On that day that Satan thought would be his ultimate triumph, his ultimate defeat was, I love how, I love how the Bible says it, said that he spoiled principalities and made an open show of them. Calvary wasn't Jesus winning. Calvary was him bragging about it. He had already won. But that was him vaunting and making an open show. When he rose from an empty tomb, when he got up from the dead, when death could not hold him, that was him just brushing them off and saying, oh, by the way, you lost. I see his destiny. But then I want you to notice finally, it's a solution to man's fall and to man's foe, but it's a solution for man's forgiveness. In this passage, and let me read it once more to you. He says, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. See, here's what we have in this passage. We have that man has disobeyed God, fallen into spiritual death, created a distance between him and God. He will never bridge that distance in and of himself because he does not want to. He's not chasing God. He's hiding in the bushes. And lest he should see that God would have mercy upon him, there is a foe that is subtle, that hates him, that is constantly seeking to blind his mind. So God, he has a solution for that. And that's without any assistance or aid or help from mankind to take upon himself the work of redemption and to come and to do for man what man could not do for himself. With that picture in God's mind, he makes three statements about the Lord Jesus that I want you to notice. You say, preacher, what's the problem? The problem is man's messed up. He's sinned. He's lost in that sin. He can't get himself to God. And even if he could, there'd be no way in and of himself he could procure forgiveness and pardon. 
But here in this passage, in germ form, we have a picture of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. Notice three things. Notice number one in this passage, he's the living seed. The Bible calls him the seed of the woman. I like the idea of that of, of that word seed used regarding progeny. I told you a moment ago <coughs> that it doesn't mean garden seed, but there are some parallels between the two ideas. Uh, when you think about garden seed, there's two things you could say about it that make it of value, of merit. What's the distinction between uh, garden seed and, let's say, the pebbles that rest at the bottom of your fish tank? Well, two things. Number one, that seed, it possesses life. You could take a stone and, 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 and bury it in the ground and water it and care for it. Nothing would ever happen because it does not have life within it. But that seed has life, nascent, intrinsic within it. You know, the Bible says this about Jesus, that in Him was life. And His life was the light of men. God didn't give Jesus life. Jesus is God. As much as God the Father is and as much as God the Spirit is. I'm careful in my language. I'm not suggesting that there is no trinity. There is a trinity. One God and three triune distinct persons. And they all three are co-equal, co-eternal, and co-existent. They are all three distinct, but they are all three deity at the same time. I love how John Wesley once described the trinity. He was in a room with three candles and he said, there are three distinct candles here, but try to compartmentalize where the light from one begins and the light from the other ends. An imperfect illustration, I'll admit, for there's nothing in the natural world like the Trinity, but a pretty good illustration nonetheless. And so Jesus, He's not merely like God, and He's not merely from God, and He's not merely of God. He is God. And as such, He intrinsically possesses life. What's man's problem? He's spiritually dead. What's God's answer? Jesus Christ, who is spiritual life. That's why you must have a literal relationship with Him that is that is originated in the new birth. It's not merely enough to study His behavior and emulate it. That leave you still spiritually dead. You have to be born again so that you have spiritual life within you. You have to have His life. Not only does He possess life, but here's another thing about that seed. Not only does it possess life, it produces life. When it's taken and through its death, and I don't, I don't want to get too deep here, but through it dying from off the stalk or from off the vine or from wherever it might come from, through its death and falling into the ground, being buried and covered over, it then resurrects in new life so that it might produce other plants. What a beautiful picture that is. And actually, the Lord Jesus Himself used that illustration. In John chapter 12, when He said, Except a kernel of wheat abide in the ground, uh, per- die, it abideth alone. He said, but if it perisheth, if it falls into the ground, it bears abundantly manifold more, more, more fruit after it. One of the remarkable things to me about a seed is that contained within it is not just its own life, but the potential life of untold millions, really limitless amounts of that same entity over and over and over and over again. What a beautiful picture that is of the Lord Jesus Christ. Preacher, who is He? He's the seed. If you have life, you're going to get it from the seed. 
But he has the life. And through his death, burial, and resurrection, and through you allowing that death, burial, and resurrection to be your death, burial, and resurrection, spiritually speaking, that same life that he is and has can live through you. I see that he is the living seed. I see a second thing. He's the willing sacrifice. Bible said that Satan would bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. It's interesting language because I don't envision a man sitting with feet dangling over a wall and a snake leaps up to bite them. But rather what I envision is a man walking along and deliberately, willfully placing his foot down on the head of the serpent. I don't like snakes. And that's biblical. Um, I I don't have a phobia of them because a phobia is an irrational fear of something. And it is rational to fear snakes. I'm okay around them if they're in, you know, behind six-inch glass or something. Uh, No, really, I'm okay around them if I can see them, if I know where they're at. Because I don't want to mistakenly step on one. But, you know, the chances of mistakenly stepping on a snake and hitting it on the head are pretty slim. I don't know if you've seen how snakes are shaped. They're, they're well, snake-like. You know, they're, they're, they're snake-like. They're long. And the chances, I think rather the imagery here is not of one that inadvertently stumbles. But rather one that does something that every good brave man should do when he walks by and sees a snake. And that's walk up and stomp that sucker right on the head. Now there's a danger when you do that because it might get you. But if you recognize the danger there and are willing to do it, I tell you, I probably wouldn't do it for me. I'd just run. But if I had my kids with me, I might look at them and I might say, it's going to hurt if it bites me. But it's going to hurt a lot worse if it bites them. And so I'll go and I'll step on it for them because I know they can't. You know what we have here? We have here that he is the willing sacrifice. He knew it was going to bite him. He was under no delusion. One of the things that's maddening to me when you read these liberal commentators that want to talk about the the crucifixion, they want to frame it as though it is merely the tragic end to a beautiful life and that Christ inadvertently bumbled His way to Calvary because of His naive, bright-eyed confidence and optimism in mankind. And nothing could be further from the truth. He knew. He talked incessantly in the days leading up to it. And He said, I'm going up to Jerusalem and I'll be crucified. And I'll rise again the third day. He knew. He didn't just know then. He didn't just get a funny feeling. He knew before this whole thing ever began. I I, I don't, you may, you may break with me over what I'm about to say. I don't know. But, but I'm going to make a statement and you take whatever you want to take it for. The Bible says in the book of Hebrews about God creating the world. He says, though the works were finished from the foundation of the world. Now you can completely out of hand dismiss what I'm about to say. It won't hurt my feelings. But God is not inside of time. And I, and I sort of have this idea that, that maybe what God did was he, he created everything. He stepped inside of time and He created everything. 
and and we can't understand this because we don't view things like God does, but that to the eyes and mind of God, everything is already a completed work. Now you say, well, preacher, that's deterministic. You're saying we don't have choice, we don't have free will. No, because funny thing, you and I, we ain't God. We do make choices. We affect things. We 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 tamper with things and metal and break things all the time. But God's not like that. And I can't explain everything about it, but I think that's the reason the Bible says this in the book of Revelation, that he is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. You see, here's the truth of the matter. He didn't just come down, survey the area and say, yeah, I guess man's worth dying for. He didn't just come down and walk amongst men and all of a sudden his popularity got out of hand and public opinion turned against him. But in some mysterious way, in the ages past, before time ever even began to march, the Godhead gathered together and began to discuss what would transpire if they created mankind and knowing what man was and knowing what would happen, knowing every single blow that would be struck against him, every single person that would spit in his face, every hair that would be plucked from his chin, knowing every stripe that would be laid upon him. Jesus Christ looked at God the Father and said, I love them enough and I value them enough that I will go to Calvary knowing what it is, knowing what it will mean, knowing Knowing what it will cost, I will go. I will crush the head of the serpent. Though I know what it will mean for me. And he did not go in blindly or naively. But he went in knowing. The prophet Isaiah calls him a lamb led to the slaughter. Not because he couldn't get away. John chapter number 10, he said, no man taketh my life from me. He reminded Peter on the eve of Calvary, even now. I have 12 legions of angels that would come at my command and it wouldn't have took that many. Two or three big ones would have got the job done. But he said, I set my face like a flint towards Jerusalem. And he went anyway. He was the willing sacrifice. But then I want you to notice and I'm done. Not only is he the living seed, and is He the willing sacrifice? But He is the delivering Savior. The Bible says this, It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. I like how gentle God is here, I guess, with the devil. Bruise don't sound that bad. But boy, what a bruise He took. The idea is utter annihilation and destruction. And that's exactly what the Lord Jesus displayed through the resurrection was his utter, unfettered, unmitigated, and unchallenged authority over death, hell, the devil, and sin. In other words, he came out the winner on that exchange. Notice two things here. One, he took the sting. I guess, you know, I could deal with a snake biting me if it wasn't a poisonous snake. And if it kept its fangs clean, I don't know. I wouldn't want a bacterial infection or something, but no, typically they don't. They don't have good dental plans. But the thing that's dangerous about a snake is the poison. Poison. Remember one time in the Old Testament, because of Israel's murmuring and complaining, uh, Moses was up preaching, it was 1225, and they started complaining, checking their watches. God sent serpents among them to bite them. Fiery serpents. The Bible says that as soon as they were bitten, they would begin to die. 
And God's solution to that was he told Moses, he said, I want you to make a brazen serpent. I want you to fasten it upon a pole. And any men that, or women or children that in the camp that have been bitten by a snake, if they look up and if they see that serpent upon the pole, if they look to the serpent on the pole, they'll live. I remember years ago, my pastor, I've still got it written in the leaf of a Bible somewhere, made this statement in passing. He said, what was the difference between the serpent on the pole and the one on the ground? He said, the serpent on the pole didn't have any venom. And so here's what would happen. They would look at that serpent that was made in the same image as the others, but it lacked the poison. And if they looked to it, they could have that poison cleansed from their body. You know what the Lord Jesus did? The Bible says it this way in 2 Corinthians, For God hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. See, he didn't just bear your sin. He became your sin. He took the sting of sin, of death. He became God, wretch his hand back to smite sin. But before it ever reached us, Jesus became that sin and was smitten of God, afflicted. He took the sting, but in that, he did a second thing. Not only did he take the sting, but he trampled the serpent. It bruised his heel, but he bruised the head of the serpent in the process. Tells me this, he delivered us. He delivered us. He delivered us. He took our poison so that we could be cleansed. He took our punishment so that we could go free. And in that, man, don't you know the devil was just, and I don't know how. I mean, I guess the devil's probably read the Bible. They're sitting around hotel rooms and all kinds of places. But don't you know he was shocked when he saw he actually did it. All these years he's been talking about doing it. But he actually did it. He actually became man and went to Calvary. He actually did it. He let him spit on him. He let him beat him. He let him strip him naked. He let him nail him to a cross. He actually did it. He actually took all that I could pour on him. He actually died. And he actually rose from the dead. Don't you know? I mean, hey, you say, preacher, what a shock it'd be for a snake to bite you on the heel. Not as big a shock as it would be for that serpent when that heel landed on its head. You say, preacher, what are you getting at? I'm saying this this morning, that all of man's deepest and most abiding problems are answered in the reality of the incarnation and in the person of the one that was incarnated in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the same problems we face today are still likewise answered in that. I told you that the law first mentioned dictates that the first time something's mentioned in the Bible, there are certain things that carry through the rest of the Word of God. And here's the truth that I get from the sermon this morning, but more than that from this passage, is God looked down at a broken mess of man's existence and He said the answer is Jesus Christ. Can I tell you today, if you're lost in your sins, broken and undone, and you're sitting there looking at the mess of your life, trying to sew together a few errant fig leaves and hide from God, can I tell you that Jesus Christ is the answer you need? 
Can I tell you today, saved child of God that's discouraged, that's disheartened, because though you are saved, you have let your sin separate you from fellowship with the Lord. And you're doing the same thing the lost person's doing. You're sitting over there sewing your excuses together and trying to pretend like you ain't hiding from... Can I tell you, Jesus Christ is the answer for you today. Can I tell you to those disheartened, discouraged, defeated, that Jesus Christ is still the answer today? Say, preacher, what's the problem? Well, you might have a hundred of them, but the solution is the same that it's always been. It's in the person of Christ. If you'll come to Him today, you say, what do you mean? Well, if you're lost, come to Him and be saved. Be saved. If you're saved but estranged from God due to your sin, I don't mean you're lost. I don't mean you're not on your way to heaven. But I mean your fellowship with the Lord is disrupted. Come to Him and ask forgiveness. Ask cleansing. Confess it to Him. He'll forgive you and He'll cleanse you. You're defeated, discouraged, disheartened today. Come to Him. Ask for encouragement. Ask for strength. He's the lifter up of our head. He'll do it today. I say to you this morning, He was always the answer. All the way back in the Garden of Eden and actually before the world ever began, He's always been the answer. And He's still the answer today if you'll just come to Him. Let's bow together this morning. As a musician comes to play, the altar's open. You're invited to come. You don't have to wait for a question to be asked or, or for the right scenario to be presented. Hey, listen, if you've got business to do with God, you just go ahead and come do business with God. But I wonder if there'd be somebody that would say, you know, Brother Toby, if I'm to be honest, I'd have to admit that if I died right now, I believe I'm lost. I don't believe I'd go to heaven. I don't believe I've ever been saved. I believe that right now I'm as lost as they were at that moment that they had sinned. Preacher, I want you to pray for me. I believe I'm lost. I need to be saved. Would you slip your hand up and let me pray for you? I won't embarrass you. I won't call your name or single you out. But I just want to pray for you. Say, Brother Toby, I believe I'm lost. I'm not sure that I'm saved. Please pray for me. Is there anybody all over the room? Just slip your hand up. Let me see it. Put it right back down. You don't have to hold it up long, just long enough for me to see. And let me pray for you. Is there anybody that say, Brother Toby, I know I'm saved, but you were preaching about someone that, that my heart holds dear this morning. They're lost and undone. They're broken. They need Christ. They can't see. They won't see. But I'm praying that God will show them. Help me pray, preacher. Would you slip your hand up and I'll help you pray? All over the room, hands went up. Maybe there's someone to say, preacher, in my life I've let some things disrupt my walk with the Lord. Some things that I know ought not be there. Here's what I want to ask of you. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. I'm going to have a word of prayer, and I want you to slip out of your seat and come do business with God about that matter right now. Would you do that? Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in His name.